You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 14th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, the world's bafflement at the alibi of the Salisbury poisoning suspects enters a second day. My guests Paige Reynolds, Tom Edwards and Augustin Machilari will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the further frictionless process of the well-oiled machine known as Brexit, an extremely important development in local newspaper publishing which will be considered with due solemnity and... A Japanese pop superstar retires should more musicians join her. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle 24's Paige Reynolds, Tom Edwards and Augustin Machilari. Welcome all. And we will start by prolonging an obviously ridiculous story into a second day just because it amuses us to do so. The world remains agog at the alibi floated yesterday by the two Russians accused by the United Kingdom of attempting to commit murder with nerve agent in Salisbury earlier this year. A measure of scepticism has greeted the assertions of Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Boshirov, if those are their real names, that they are a pair of blameless cathedral enthusiasts whose research into Salisbury's spire did not reveal that there are many hotels nearby, which is why they stayed in East London and made two consecutive day trips. Um, I think I'll, I'll start with you, Tom. After a day's further reflection, it's it's not it's not getting any better, is it? Uh, probably not. The thing I find most extraordinary about this is actually the response uh, within Russia to the TV appearance. And Paige will probably understand this better, given her linguistic advantages. Um, there's no interest in the fact that these two uh, may or may not have left potentially thousands of people in the line of, of danger. All the interest is about the, the detail, the logistics, particularly whether or not they shared a hotel room, which is apparently the compelling narrative if you're in Russia right now. Um, absolutely extraordinary. No one's buying. I think what does impress me, if we can say anything about this, is the the brazen nature of it. We've seen it from Putin before, pushing what's acceptable almost to the limit. This is as clear an admission of the guilt of these two as they could have made without admitting to it. The, the, the lunacy of the excuses, we can talk about some of the detail. It's so preposterous. It's an affront to common sense. And I, I think that's quite calculated from their handlers, one imagines in the Kremlin, if, if not the main man himself, um, to really test the sort of the, the metal of the watching rest of the world. It, it's extraordinary though, even by Putin's standards. Uh, Paige, uh, those linguistic advantages <laughs> that you have, which is to say that you speak and read Russian, we have been putting to actual use this afternoon. You've been consuming some of what is being broadcast and printed not in, about this story in Russia to mm -hmm. Russians. And it's quite different, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite varied, actually. Um, there's definitely this mad fixation on just Salisbury as a tourist destination. Um, <laughs> a lot of the Russian news websites and newspapers have actual pictures of Salisbury. The the um, front page of Commerçant, which is quite an upstanding newspaper, has a picture of the steeple itself. It's a very um, nice steeple. It in is fairness. a very nice steeple. It's um, 123 metres tall. It's 123 <laughs> metres tall. Know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, someone was reading the Wikipedia. 
Um, but you know, the odd elements of the interview, I don't think haven't haven't been lost on a lot of Russian commentators. Um, and there are a lot of questions that have been left unanswered. Quite interestingly, actually, in the Commodore article, um, there was a Russian uh, political scientist who said um, that this is sort of a sort of game that's being played on the Russian people that basically this should lead the audience to believe that because they these because of the way they've been acting and the sort of strange definite lies they've been telling that there's no way they could be special agents which I think is quite an interesting angle um, to say that actually they were potentially intentionally made out to look so foolish because therefore the Russians would understand that there's no way they could be agents so I don't I don't know what kind of line there is there, there was a, interesting before we came on here you were talking about one Russian newspaper though which is seeking to enlist its readers this is weird yeah so Komsomolskaya Pravda which is uh, one of the big tabloids. Um, in Russia, I saw a, an article just now on their website that said they're um, offering 100,000 rubles, which is about a thousand pounds, for anyone who can offer the editors any information on um, the two suspects, or if they know anyone, or their family, or their relatives. So, I think people are definitely interested in this story, but. Like Tom said, there's this weird fixation as well on this like potential intimacy between um, between the two of them. Um, Russian Mash, a news channel, has asked the readers if Petrov and Bosharov are agents forced to be gay or gay is forced to be agents. <laughs> um, and another headline said, crime business or intimacy, um, a psychologist reveals what the scripples poisoners are hiding. It's all very odd. It's uh, all very bizarre. It, it is. And, and, and thank you for that survey of the Russian media page, which takes us into realms of weirdness we had not even thought about <laughs> this time yesterday. Um, Gustin, a lot of this, as we've been discussing, is odd. The thing that seems oddest to me is that they have concocted an alibi of all the excuses they could have made up, which actually confirms that they were absolutely near the scene of the crime with the motive and opportunity. Sure. And... Uh that does present a bit of a sort of pickle to anyone <laughs> looking on. I, I'd just like to quickly go back to the, the sort of Russian response before we came on uh, just now. I was reading on Twitter um, a Russian correspondent who has been talking to people on the street. And I do think it's worth noting that for all we are sitting around laughing at it um, as as a load of old uh, codswallop, uh, people in Muscovites, you know, that he's interviewed really buy it. Um, my favourite quote is from Leonid, a 58-year-old businessman, who says they're a normal pair who just got into trouble. I'm sure they feel pretty bad now. Well, thanks, Britain. They explained everything pretty simply and clearly yesterday. It, it kind of reflects, you know, this, this like widening chasm between Western perceptions and Russian perceptions, which both of which are coloured by like a kind of very different sort of cultural environment, a different kind of level of press freedom, a different perspective on nationality and nationhood and, you know, inclinations towards being a little bit more kind of patriotic or less. Uh, all of this kind of obfuscation so far feeds into what one of my favourite documentarians, Adam Curtis, characterised. Uh, oh he, God, the Adam <laughs> Curtis documentary about this is going to be unbearable, isn't it? It's going to be uh, it's going to be at least eight hours long. <laughs> um, so he argues that Vladislav Surkov, who is one of Putin's uh, leading advisers, has pioneered a kind of propagandic gaslighting technique designed to destabilise the Russian opposition initially by kind of making everyone question really what is reality? You know, how is the Kremlin playing things? And to me, it just looks like they've sort of turned their, you know, gaslighty illuminations outwards 
to the rest of the world and and they're just kind of chucking out any old nonsense and and what can anyone really do well on that thought, let's move seamlessly along on the subject of implausible bunglers offering absurd explanations for the failure of obviously idiotic schemes uh, and consider the week in Brexit. The sunlit uplands, which we were promised a little over two years ago, still seem nowhere in reach. The prospects of a no-deal Brexit are growing, as is the understanding of the chaos that could be unleashed. The Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, warning of a plunge in house prices which could badly rattle the economy. In what may also be a significant development, the influential and noisily pro-Brexit newspaper, The Daily Mail, has a new editor, Geordie Gregg, who is much less keen on Brexit than his predecessor. Um, thinking first about a no-deal Brexit, ha- have any of you actually started hoarding anything yet? I'm a survivalist, so I always have uh, <laughs> 500 kilos of rice in my basement and uh, canned goods. What, what, the canned goods had better be tasty because 500 kilos of rice, that's, 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 that's a monotonous diet. Chopped tomatoes, Andrew. How long does that keep you going for? 500 kilos of rice with tomatoes? <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> we'll no, find I, out in March. I think, I think, I think the hoarding thing is just, is just quite obscene, really. And I think even, even with Mark Carney's statements about what might happen with the no deal, um, there were sort of uh, uh, potentially properties, uh, property prices going down by about a third. It, it is a doomsday scenario. And I think that people are quite quick to sort of jump on the bandwagon and say, this is what's going to happen as soon as, as soon as like Brexit happens. But actually, you know that they're just sort of looking at all the different possible scenarios and that is the worst case scenario so i don't know i think it's a bit ridiculous when we start talking about hoarding food and medical supplies have you become a brexiteer have you been (laughs) have you been converted to the cause no i haven't i just think i think it's important to sort of have a bit slightly more considered approach Okay, well, but the thing is, we now know where we can find five hundred kilograms of rice and tomatoes if it all if it all does go horribly wrong. So that's that's a load off my mind, I can tell you. Uh, Tom, how, how do you think it's all going? Well, I thought it was quite telling that Carney said our job is not to hope for the best, but to plan for the worst. And he's been relatively sensible throughout. He's been as outspoken as his uh, responsibilities and the obligations incumbent on him in that role have allowed him to be in warning people that this is a very bad idea. This is going to have some very bad uh, consequences. And he's continuing to do exactly that. He, he's done the, the, the sort of generous thing, you could say, by agreeing to stay in his role right through till, Indeed, till 2020. Uh, sort of, we'll be, we will have plummeted from the cliff edge. So I guess we'll be sort of, you know, barely alive on the sort of ruins below. And he'll still be Clinging, trying to... Clinging onto a branch which is sticking out of the cliff. Well, possibly. Or that just that moment when Wiley Coyote looks, <laughs> looks round to camera and then realises that the ground is gone. Um, I think it's sensible of him to, to be... See, he's still relatively measured. I'd slightly disagree, but I don't think it's it's sort of histrionic. I think the, the food hoarding and all the rest is slightly over uh, at the top. But I think people need to be reminded of the danger of a... Of a of a no deal, this idea which floated, you know, May herself said it, you know, no deal's better than a bad deal. It does appear finally that you know the scales have fallen from uh, some people's eyes, and they've realised that would be far far worse. It it's, it just reminds me that even during the campaign, I was a bit complacent as well, partisan, metropolitan, liberal elite, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but there were some articulate voices warning of the dangers. And, you know, people have stopped doing this now, but in the first few months after, they said, oh, why did no one say this before? People did say it before. It was just that nobody listened. Um, Augustine, I do want to talk about the development in, in British 
newspapers, uh, the change of editorship at the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail, uh, an absolutely feral pro-Brexit voice for many, many years under the editorship uh, of Paul Dacre, now supplanted by former Mail on Sunday editor Geordie Gregg. Um, first of all, I guess for if for our international listeners, how would you go about explaining the Daily Mail to them? The Daily Mail is a kind of especially vitriolic uh, tabloid, um, arguably more pernicious than most because... It's less, you know, inclined to mix lunatic sensationalism UFO stories with its politics and rather pursues a kind of weirdly monomaniacal kind of uh, attack on immigration uh, cancer, which is fair enough. And it's got a couple of other bugbears, hasn't it? I can't... Remember. Falling house prices, ironically. Yeah, right. for, for ironically, falling house prices. You can't say, in fairness to the mail, that is broadly against it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah but no, it, no, it, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I would never want to criticise them for that. Oh, but it says, you know, uh, everything gives it to you, right? Or cures Don't chew Depending on what day, of, what day of the week it is. Sure. And it kind of operates under the aegis of Paul Dacre, who, as you just uh, said, has now moved on from his post, and who is responsible for very much creating this kind of horrible thing in his own image. He uses a certain profanity so often in his morning editorial meetings that they're known as the vagina monologues, <laughs> I've been uh, informed, and is a really thoroughly, comprehensively uh, reprehensible being. Anyway, up to this point, uh, it has been really blowing the trumpet of Brexit. Geordie Gregg, meanwhile, has uh, been editing the Mail on Sunday for the past years and is a fairly lucid, level-headed uh, Remainer. So what's been interesting uh, to notice is that in this first week of his editorship, the paper's sort of editorial line has changed from being like a kind of real attack dog. You know, you've got to remember this is the like, what, did, what was that headline? Something about the traitors, hang uh, the traitors. En- enemies of the people, enemies I think, the was people. what they referred to. I think that was the High Court, they they descri- uh, the High Supreme Court, court rather, they That's described right. as the enemies of the people. I mean, Tom, if, if the mail becomes slightly less... Um, rabid, does it make a significant difference to the general mood music? Because no newspapers in this country are as influential as they once were, but the Daily Mail is influential. Politicians are genuinely scared of it. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, you can see how it was always going to be interesting to see how this ha- would work once uh, Dacre moved upstairs as he's moved as to become, I think, chairman on some sort of honorary chairman and Greg took over. Because the two papers, the Mail and the Mail on Sunday, the brother and sister paper, have been tweaking each other's notes, trying to trump each other's uh, exclusives, countering leaders the next day by response. There's this sort of uh, cloak and dagger publishing of the paper so they don't get wind of what the other was doing for a long time. So it was to be anticipated that Greg would try and change the narrative. I fear, though, that even a moderation of their tone won't kind of uh, bleed out into the community, sadly. And the readers who are, in you know, sort of rabidly engaged Dacre's worst excesses, I, I don't know. I mean, if it has that power, maybe it might temper their, their worst excesses. But I fear that the die is cast mm. and it's only sort of jockeying now. But, you know, one can only hope. I, I agree with what Ork said. I mean, he, he does seem to have slightly more, uh, I don't know, compassion he seems a bit more level-headed so you can only hope I mean, Paige, is, the, is it also possible that Geordie Gregg does just see, as I think people are starting to, which way the wind is blowing on this, and that this was not, even if you thought this was a good idea, Brexit that is, it's fairly clear now that it's not quite going to be the walk in the park that it was presented as. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point. I think it's, it's, it's becoming clear, uh, has become clear over the sort of past months that um, it's, it's not really going to be a walk in the park, and I don't think anyone's believing that anymore. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's going to make a, a massive impact perhaps um 
to what to what that paper is saying. However, I do think that there's there's quite a, a difference between the Daily Mail online and the Daily Mail paper, and I would suggest that perhaps online there might still be a little bit of uh, negativity towards it. Well, yeah, it was interesting when you said uh, talking to our international readership. I would advise them not to go to the Daily Mail online. <laughs> that Ever. won't tell you a great deal about the the newspaper, which looks positively like an august and venerable and trustworthy institution. Uh, alongside the the online variant. Yeah, it's very bad. Uh, Indeed so. Well, we will take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Augustin Machalari, Tom Edwards and Paige Reynolds. Coming up next, why rock stars never retire. Mention the name Funkhouse in Berlin and you'll be greeted with excited curiosity or a mysterious smile from those in the know. The former communist broadcasting house got a new lease of life when young musicians hunkered down. Monocle Films set out on a tour of the stunning studios and recording halls. Funkhaus on the same wavelength, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Tom Edwards, Paige Reynolds and Augustin Machalari. To Japan now, which is preparing itself for a spectacle unusual in popular culture, the formal retirement of a pop star. Naomi Amuro has been often referred to as Japan's Madonna, except in Japan, where Madonna is thought of as everywhere else as Naomi <laughs> Amuro. Uh, her most recent album had the hint-dropping title, Finally, and this weekend she will play what she says is her last ever show in her native Okinawa, after which she is out just short of her 41st birthday. I mean, it prompts the question about why this is unusual, to which the answer is obvious, which is, of course, that being a rock star and or a pop star, if you're successful at it, it's presumably really good fun. Uh, it pays well, people clap at you, tell you you're marvellous, and so forth. But that notwithstanding, is it surprising that so few people hang it up? I think it is. I think it is surprising that so few people hang it up because I think there's, there is a lot of criticism directed to those sort of ageing rock stars. And actually, I think, you know, there's a there's a lot to be said for sort of uh, to leaving something and, and having a very sort of uh, decent legacy. I mean, Nami Amura, she's 41, which is which isn't really that old. Um, uh, she was she's not, a, it's not remotely it's old. Not old. I, I, I would not prefer to think not not even Sorry. not <laughs> even <laughs> slightly forgot about the demographic in here for a minute. Slightly, um, youthful is the is the word yeah, I would use. Yeah, no, exactly. But I think I think what she's doing is actually really impressive, and I think it is something that perhaps other stars across the world could learn from. She's had an amazing career. She's given a lot to um, to sort of Japanese culture. Um, she's occupied a really important space in having Japan having a sort of female icon in the in the 90s and the early noughties. Um, and I think her send off look sounds amazing. They're going to Okinawa. Um, there's going to be loads of events, exhibitions of her articles and photos of her. Um, an hour-long fireworks show, live streamings of her sort of past concerts, and then there'll obviously be a DVD of the final concert that I, I presume they'll be selling for for years to come. And I think I think there's a lot to be learned from that. See, I, I, it's a thing I genuinely wonder about musicians, especially once they get to that point where they've they've entered you know some sort of wilderness period, whether or not they ever recover from it. About what's going on in their head, whether they think themselves that they've completely lost it. Like you know, when when David Bowie was sitting listening to the playback of those dreadful records he made in the 80s with all the synthesizers and slap bass and session musicians with their suit jacket sleeves rolled up. Was he sitting there thinking, this is totally as good as Diamond Dogs? Yep, absolutely. Still got it. It was of the moment. Mm. I don't know. You can almost look back sometimes on some of those eras. I think if someone then comes out the other side and that was their sort of midlife crisis of mediocrity and does something quite interesting. Which he kind of did. Even towards the end, certainly Bowie did. 
I think we need to maybe stop slightly short of uh, elevating Naomi Amuro into the Bowie uh, bracket. What I would say is, I guess if you're more at the sort of pop end of the musical spectrum, it is a bit more uh, performative. And if you look at something where your physical shape's more... Maybe she's more... It's more sensible to compare someone like Naomi Amuro with... A sports a, a, a person. Sports person. Yeah, yeah, she, I was literally about to make well, that she got comparison. Started, she got yeah. started at 14 years old, like a lot of precocious sporting talents. You know, to do two and a half or decades, it's not very forgiving on the body. Uh, we've just seen a couple of high-profile sportsmen. If people follow cricket around the world. You know, our Alistair Cook just retired. He went out scoring century in his final test. You want to go out on a high note. Maybe we need to recalibrate what our expectations of the different musical genres are. There's something compelling about, you know, the grizzled old bluesman. I mean, they kind of start that way. If you're a pop star maybe you need to look more at the kind of pro sports arena uh, for your your guidance on how long to give it augustine does it besmirch a great legacy if the artist or artists in question carry on long past the point at which they were able to add to it the obvious example being somebody like the rolling stones who i don't think have now made a decent album since i started school and (laughs) that's getting to be quite a long time ago now and yet still they go on does it make what the rolling stones created when they were good any lesser yeah i mean the rolling stones Stones is kind of the classic example, isn't it? And it's what I think probably most of us were thinking about. They are almost all kind of like mummified corpses at this point, sort of living this literally thing. in a couple of cases. I yeah, think. yeah, and it is, and it is weird. But you know what? I know a lot of people who've been to see them and who say that they continue to get an absolutely amazing thrill out of the performances, regardless of or not. Um, about the quality of the songs that have come out. I probably would pack it in by then because I'd be tired and I'm looking forward to retiring in (laughs) about 80 years. But, um, you know, they've chosen not to. They're making loads of money. They're probably having fun. And they continue to experience the kind of adulation of tens of thousands of people who, like, genuinely think they're great. So, you know, I guess you've got to look at it from that side as well. Another thing that occurred to me is that, you know, a lot of pop and rock stars have probably precluded the possibility of other careers by going in for (laughs) pop and rock. Uh, You know, so unless you put away a fair amount of cash, which is definitely possible if you were recording music before around 2008, but since then has become harder and harder to do, you've kind of you know, miss the boat on getting another job. So you're going to have to keep going for as long as you can. Is the comparison, is, the it, well, it's like sportsmen again. You know, if you don't if you don't get a decent nest egg in your limited career, it could be five years, could be 10, could be 15, you know, are you always thinking, oh, I should have tried harder at school? And again, that's just never been very rock and roll. Mm. So interestingly enough, uh, on sports, one of the former members of the band, the Maccabees, is now a Radio 5 cricket commentator. There you go. There, there, there's, you can turn it around. There's, 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 somebody, there's, there's somebody who planned ahead. If Naomi Amuro is listening to this, that's that's possibly something she might want to think about, getting into cricket commentary. Quickly on the Rolling Stones, because I'm, I'm not a fan. Are they are they all still alive? Yeah. No, well, Drummer died, didn't he? Uh, no, he's, Charlie Watts is still alive. One of them did. Brian Jones, but that was a long time ago mm. when they were still a, an actual They're thing. all still alive in terms of the ones you would... Right. be thinking about 
because I, I I think that that's also something which is quite bizarre. I think when when the sort of front man dies or when there's you know only one member of the band left, mm. I'm pretty sure Axl Rose is still doing Stone Roses and there's just Guns and Roses. Guns, Guns and Roses. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Axl sorry. Rose with the Stone Roses is something I would pay to listen to. <laughs> 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 I patented it. Angus Young. No, Angus Young's still alive. It was Malcolm Young, the rhythm guitarist, who died. But ACDC's first, well, he wasn't actually technically their first singer. That was Dave Evans. Bon Scott died many years ago and right. was replaced by Brian Williams. Brian Johnson, sorry. Who is Brian Williams? Brian Johnson replaced Bon Scott. And he was replaced, of course, quite recently by Axl Rose. See? See? It, it, it's there all something in it. Moving. Life's rich tapestry. <laughs> exactly. But it's, I guess it's hard. Where there is that big signature talent, like Queen, obviously, still playing with... Uh, oh, what's I was about to say, I saw Brian May do Queen in concert, and it was just... Bizarre, but you got seeing Queen without. Is he singing? Freddie no, no, no. Mercury. Got, who's, there's a, there's a. I've got no idea. Who the guy out of Maroon Five? I'm not sure who. Really? He is. He's not. I it's not. It's, see, see, Queen, it's not Queen, great. Queen are a band I don't so much wish had retired. It was just it just never actually started. Because between them, well, no, the tit- the title of all time worst band ever. It's it's hotly contested, but they're in the reckoning with Pink Floyd in the Doors. Oh uh, yeah. But what about the? I guess the flip side of all of this coin is, what about those artists that do something staggeringly good later Late in, in life? life Johnny Cash, for the example. The reinvention, these sort of American albums. Now, nobody would have wanted to deny the world those, but no. you wouldn't have known unless he kept his hand in. He buddied up with someone else, so it, it's a it's a delicate one. Leonard Cohen as well, last exactly. album, masterpiece. His final two was superb. But finally tonight, regular listeners to this programme will have come to value it as a salon of high-minded discourse and sanctuary from the tawdry, puerile prattle of so much modern media. Those listeners should be reassured that it is only Monocle's institutional interest in the health of modern print media that leads us to contemplate the launch of a new local newspaper in a small town in Missouri, which is named after the seventh planet from the sun. Tom, would you like to tell our listeners what this newspaper is going to be called well it's called uranus examiner mm. um and obviously U- uranus we should say is the town in missouri yeah the examiner is a perfectly respectable name for a newspaper there's nothing funny about this and at if, all. It, if it takes we you should anywhere be at least else, be grateful they didn't call it the bugle if it takes you <laughs> if it takes you anywhere else it says more about you than it does about the good people of of, uh, of uranus or uranus as they i think say stateside um now, is this a colossal end joke to get lots of interest? Very possibly. That's not going to stop me from talking about it. <laughs> I, I, they get my full endorsement. I think we're we're pun poor, and in an age when you know, we talk often that the the news agenda it's it's unsatirizable because it's so ridiculous, we need to bring back some more innocent punnery. Uh, and this is exactly the kind of thing. Well, g- going uh, going we back need. to our previous item, of course, we should tip a hat to the New York Post. Um, this story has been doing the rounds this week. An excellent interview with Paul McCartney uh, by Chris Heath in GQ, in which Paul McCartney reflects on some of the more. Um, I don't know how to put it. Coll- collective exuberances of the, of, 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 of the <laughs> young Beatles. Uh, and the New York Post has gone with the headline, Beat the Beatles, which is which is, is, is magnificent. As a veteran of the music press, uh, yeah, I, I had my hand over my heart when I read that. Just, just, just magnificent. <laughs> I think some of our listeners are going to be wondering what uh, what anecdote that they can look it up. <laughs> they can they can look it up, and in fact, let's face it, they already have. Uh, uh, but but does will this? Does anyone think? Page, I will put to you. If you are if you are writing for if you have a newspaper called the the let's call it the Uranus Examiner, uh, 
is that name in itself going to undermine any claims it makes to be a, a serious journal of record? I think it depends whether you pronounce it Uranus or Uranus. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what it really rests on. Um, the the article says here, um, it quotes uh, one of the uh, the newspaper's managing editor who said, we had thought about constitution, uh, but most of the people who love us and who are part of coming up with the name like the examiner better. And I think Uranus constitution would have been just as bad. So so who knows? It's, it's a tough decision for a town that, that that's called Uranus, isn't it? I mean, I do I do like the fact that it was that the article starts saying that it was launched in Uranus as well. I mean, well, the, it's, it, I, the thing is, if, if you're it's going the to, gift that keeps giving. It is. If you're going to call a town that it is, it, it's asking for trouble, isn't it? Really? Yeah. I wonder, though, you know, if you're looking at safeguarding the reputation of the townsfolk, the town and the newspaper institution itself, you know, maybe it depends what the agenda is that the paper follows. You know, if they do, for example, a lot of in-depth probes, um, <laughs> then they'll buy a lot more credibility. Oh, dear me. <laughs> uh, we've, we've got about another 60 seconds if anybody's got any more of these that um, they, they, they want to get off their chest. I think they should have called it uh, the Uranus Guardian. That's what I would have called it. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, I think so. I did look up a couple of weird um, newspaper names across the states. Um, there's a town in uh, Arizona called Tombstone. And there their is. paper's called the Tombstone Epitaph, which I really liked. Um, there's also a newspaper in Arkansas called De Queen Bee which I thought was quite fun. Um, and lastly, the Jefferson Jimplecute in Texas. The Jefferson what? Jimplecute. How do you spell that? Uh, J-I-M-P-L-E-cute. What is a Jimplecute? I have no idea. I think maybe there's some sort of trend that I, I'm, I'm unaware of, sort of odd-sounding um, local American newspapers. Twee. They're a lot more twee than the Uranus I was, I was sort of trying to bring up uh, <laughs> were, maybe the, the trying... brow of this discussion <laughs> were, before the end. You were fighting some long odds there, Paige, to be fair. <laughs> Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show, probably mercifully. Augustine, Tom and Paige, thank you very much for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Augustine Machelari, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. 